Namaste and welcome. This is Jainil Dalal and you are listening to The Design MBA. This podcast is a real-life MBA program for designers where we interview design hustlers and learn the skills, mindset, necessary for a designer to launch a business venture. You can learn more, find past episodes, and stay updated at designmba.show. Why are you listening to this podcast? Think about it. Deep down, you want to grow in your design career. And I've been in your shoes. I've pushed pixels for years without really knowing how the hell do I grow in my design career. So I've created a free email course for you to help you level up your design career. The strategies I share in this 7-day email course are actionable and used by over 700 plus designers with success. So head over to levelup.designmba.show or you can find the link to this email course in the show notes. Level up your design career today. Today's amazing guest is Heer Gandhi. Heer is a hardware engineer and entrepreneur from Ahmedabad, India. He has a bachelor's degree in electronics and communication from Nirmal University in India, and as well as a master's degree in electrical and computer engineering from Carnegie Mellon University. After a small stint working at Apple on the iPhone in 2008, he ventured into startup roles as a founder and a first engineer at Invivomon Inc. and Bossanova Robotics, respectively. He's now director and stakeholder at Dazzle Robotics Private Limited based out of India where he manages product development and manufacturing for OEM clients. Here, so excited to have you on the show man. This is a completely full circle for me having worked with you, having looked up to you as my senior in college. Super excited to be chatting with you today man. Thanks Jainul. Me too. I'm really happy to be here and happy to talk to you about some of my experiences and what i've gone through to get to where i am right now and i hope it will inspire a lot of other engineers and entrepreneurs out there and i believe it since last we chatted you you have kids right now boy girl how old are they i have a girl that's uh, she's 7 her name's prisha and i have a oh amazing son. yeah my son's 3 years old now his name is rishabh Yeah, I had them pretty much uh, right after I moved back to India from the US. So that was actually the we were planning to have kids early and uh, that was also one of the reasons to move to India with all the support structure and uh, help that you have easier to do it without really thinking about the support that you need. So it's cool but so having kids is uh, having kids is a pleasure in itself. Oh, I bet. And you've got the king's choice. You've got both the boy and the girl versus like, you know, having just two boys or two girls. Yeah. So now you got like is it both the perspective? Yeah, uh that's true. Actually, uh you don't think of it like that. At least I didn't think of it like that. Not what I've seen is everyone who's had a girl wants another girl and everyone who's had a boy wants another boy. The reason being is they think it's going to be easy because they've already had one. It's easy to have another girl so they somehow end up being more comfortable with the second one being of the same gender but in my case it was the same thing i was also hoping for another girl and uh, when we had a boy we were definitely i was i thought about it twice i was wondering all my friends obviously logically said it's better to have both a girl and a boy and uh, i understand that now because there's so much fun of having a boy and a girl compared to a lot of other friends and family that i have that have 
both girls or both boys. It's definitely better. Yeah, I heard that a lot. I think it seems like to be the season of girls. Like everybody that I'm running mm. into, I was recently in India mm. and uh, there everybody I ran into, most mm. of them were just having girls. And just like mm. you said, they were also like, oh, I want to have another girl. Yeah. And yeah, uh, think- you're quite an ambitious guy. So do you feel like when you're, you know, raising your kids, you have expectations from them that they should surpass you or follow in your footsteps or stuff like that? Frankly, I don't push them as much except for... Uh, asking them to excel in whatever they are trying to do, or at least understand the fundamental or the basics of uh, what they are doing. And at the end of the day, you have to have fun, right? Luckily, I had a mom that was very, uh, that pushed us and a father that always made us see the fun side of everything. So I want them to understand that things have to be done. They have to be done well, but at the same time, you have to have fun while doing it. So that's uh, my kid. I put my kids in sports and in, in music classes and extracurriculars and all of these. Obviously, these are ambitious uh, expectations. Normally, you would just let them free play. But the reason we do this is not only that they, they understand different, they gather different intelligences. It's also important that they have fun. Once they learn to have fun with what they are doing, I think it will be easier for the rest of their uh, uh, their life. So tracking, so that is this, you know, phenomenal way to look at things here. And then I'm now I'm trying to like think about, you know, your journey. Hmm. So you're a Gujarati born right. in Ahmedabad. And for those people who don't know, Ahmedabad is, I hope I don't get this wrong, it's really funny, <laughs> but it's the birthplace of Mahatma Gandhi. We have the Gandhi Ashram there and in the state of Gujarat. And you decided to go to Nirmai University right. to do your undergrad. And from there, you were part of the, the prestigious Robocon team where uh, I was also a member and uh, you were in, heavily involved in robotics. So now I'm trying to like take a focus. And so here is about to complete undergraduation. And then you decide to go to Carnegie Mellon. So how did that come about? So, as I told you, it all, came, uh, it all came about from my mother and my family. They always pushed us in acad- academia. They understood the value of uh, education. They understood the value of an, a skill. So, throughout school, we always had this thing that we should get a master's degree or a PhD degree. There was always this hope that at some point we would either get into an IIT or an Ivy League college or one of the top engineering colleges in India or the US. Now, Nirma was something I wanted to do. My parents obviously wanted me to do get into an IIT. They wanted me to do the JE. They pushed me to do the JEE exams. Uh, I even appeared for the yep. IIT exams. And uh, the results were awful. I, I performed extremely badly. And I told my parents that there's no way I'm getting into an IIT. There's no way I want to spend another year trying to get into one. I want to get, I want to do engineering. I'm good at it. And uh, I definitely think Nirma is a university that can, uh, that can help me. So they finally agreed and said, okay, you, you've got the grades to get into Nirma university. So you can go ahead and we won't, we won't push you to uh, waste another year getting into the IITs. So that's my story. So you managed to convince them eventually. 
it was easy once. Uh, so it was difficult to convince them while I was studying for uh, the joint entrance exam because they, I always had a good academic score in school. So they assumed that would translate to cracking the uh, JEE. At the same time, I knew that with the educational background I had, the uh, which was an uh, SSC board, what you call it in Gujarat, compared to a CBSE board in Gujarat, I understood that there were a lot of things that I, a lot of fundamentals that I didn't have in terms of mathematics, physics, and chemistry that would be able to get me through JEE. So once I, once I actually gave the exam and my results were terrible, at that point, they kind of understood that this is going to be a, a tough effort for me. So when I tried to convince them, they got convinced at that point. But uh, yeah, it would have been difficult to convince them without actually trying. Wow. So to everybody who's listening and, and if you are by any chance from India and mm -hmm. uh, you're wondering about if you're not going to crack into the MITs of India, then there's a lot of hope for you guys. Yeah, definitely. So, and then at, at any point were you like concerned about like the debt, meaning like you're probably going to go to Carnegie Mellon, so it's going to be an expensive endeavor, right? So Taking uh, out the student loan and everything. Again, I didn't really think about uh, going to the US. It was obviously something everyone had, my parents had planned at some point. My grandparents had always a thought and they had saved up. My parents had saved up. So here you have decided to, you know, go to Nirma University in Gujarat, which is obviously one of the most uh, esteemed universities. And your major is electrical engineering and you're heavily into robotics. Now talk to me about the journey from there to going to Carnegie Mellon. How did that come about and what was your experience like there? My parents always wanted me to get into an IIT. But as you said, Nirma was also a prestigious college and I couldn't crack the joint entrance exams. So the next step of this, their next plan was that after Nirma, I should do a master's or a PhD in a US university or in a top 10 engineering university. So obviously they had the funds saved up and... Uh, once I was done with my GRE exams, which I think a lot of the viewers should know that GRE is required is a requirement for all engineering universities. Once I was done with my GREs and I had a good score, I decided that I would only go to the US if I got into one of the top 10 universities for electrical and computer engineering at that time. So I applied only to the top 10, to the MITs, Stanford, Purdue, Carnegie Mellon, one of them, Texas A&M, Texas Austin. Wow. So when I applied to these six or seven universities, I got rejections from all of them except from Carnegie Mellon. So my parents... Which were, is the best one? I guess for computer science, definitely. For electrical, there are a couple of... I think Stanford is good. Even MIT is, is better. But come to think of it, for what I wanted to do, uh, Carnegie Mellon was the best one because they, it allowed me... It's a small campus. We got to take a lot of courses in robotics, a lot of courses in computer science, and that helped build the foundation to actually be all-round hardware engineer and a robotics engineer. And you were always fascinated with robotics when you were, since you were a kid, or was it something that you just came along from college time and, and a little bit later on in life? I actually broke up with my girlfriend in 2004, and I had a lot of free time on my plate. One of the professors in uh, Nirma noticed that I had a talent for hardware and firmware 
and I understood programming and logic, which was required for robotics. So he pushed me to uh, get into the uh, Robocon plan. So Robocon was a team that professors in Nirma or a couple of professors who coordinated the Robocon team set up and they invited intelligent students or capable students to join the team and to try out to build the robots or the, the platforms that were required to compete in the Robocon competitions. This particular professor, KD Shah, he noticed that I had some talent and he said, why don't you try out for the Robocon team? So he got me introduced to, at that time, the people that were leading the Robocon team. One of them was uh, Siddharth Vaidya, who's currently one of the partners or directors in this in the business that we are in right now, Dazzle Robotics. He's also one of the partners and also one of the reasons why I came back to India. And Mayank uh, Verma, who was a mechanical engineer, who was a senior and leading the Robocon team. So it happened by chance. Someone noticed that there was talent and he said, why don't you join? And I tried out and it was a good fit. I had a lot of time on my plate, as I mentioned. And in three months, we were able to build something that was good enough to win the national Robocon event in Pune. And that was a big win because we defeated IIT Bombay, who were chosen to win in per se. They had much better robots. They had much better the quality and the finish of their robots was a lot better than ours. But in the end, we had the strategy, planning and the software that helped us win that Robocon. So you guys literally in the Robocon competition, mm. for those of you who are listening, it's like mm. a, an annual competition where all the colleges from India, I think right. more than 100 colleges participate and they put in teams and they compete with each other, almost like knockoffs and, and you go to the finals. And so here you and the team, you guys literally mm. defeated all the colleges to become the number one reigning champions in India and, and right. set forward a legacy. And then, then you represent India at the international stage. Correct. Yes, we did. We did represent and that was unsuccessful attempt. We went with the same, almost the same designs and our technology, frankly, was not up to the mark. We didn't have access to a lot of automation and robotic parts that could have helped us at that time uh, build better a better robotic platform. When we went to the International Robocon event, both Siddharth and I were part of the international team from Nirma. And we, as electronic and robotic engineers at that time, we realized that the reason we are failing is at international events is that we do not have access to the kind of mechanical parts, the kind of automation parts, motors, actuators, as well as the kind of electronics that the latest electronics that are used to actuate or drive those motors. That was a realization that we had when we came back from the international competition. And that was why we started to, Siddharth and I always had in, had in the back of our mind that if engineers in India have access to these kind of robotic parts and tools, they can go a long way. That was the initial idea with which the RoboKits online store was started. Siddharth started that back in 2007, right after graduating from Nirmaya University. So it's like two deviating tracks mm. are happening between two best friends. You yeah. are deciding to go to Carnegie Mellon while right. Siddharth is 
deciding that okay i want to empower all the future engineers in india students and colleges with the right. best robotic parts that foreign universities have right. so he starts off that business right so did you at that point decide that you might just like stick it out in india and help him in that endeavor or were you set that i have to go to the us to get that masters degree frankly there were a lot of things we were trying siddharth was not sure about the robotics online store it was an idea that wasn't executed similarly i had a job opportunity from motorola that i had got in my 6th uh, semester in uh, nirma so i always had a plan to that if i didn't get into a good university in the us i would accept the offer and i would join motorola for a couple of years of experience of uh, job experience so i had a backup plan so motorola was a plan going to us was definitely a plan i didn't have any plan at that time to start my own business i didn't have the kind of ambition that would be required to do that at that time so i had two plans either go to the us work in motorola and siddharth on the other hand was more ambitious at that time even now he is uh, he had the entrepreneurial spirit so he he at that time in 2007 just after graduating nirma he wanted to either join a startup which was in technology or he wanted to start something like robokits which was an online store for robotic parts so he, his vision was more entrepreneurial at that time my vision was more self self development so that's amazing segue so then you decide that okay you you end up going to carnegie mellon you are right. attending all these lectures there hmm. fine tuning your craft right in electrical engineering and robotics right so then i believe you got the job offer from apple right so uh, the job offer from apple came right after i started carnegie mellon when i joined carnegie mellon and i moved to the us in august of 2007 i immediately applied to bossanova robotics that was a robotic startup out of carnegie mellon i also applied to apple siddharth and i had worked on a major project that you can look up on youtube it's it's called chess station portable this was a time when you didn't have smartphones 2007 was a time when the iphone was the first iphone was launched it was a secret product until then yep historic time, moment yeah so at that time when we about 6 to 8 months before the iphone was launched siddharth and i decided that uh, we should do our major project in nirma labs now nirma labs is an incubation center within nirma university that helps uh, startup companies fund startup companies with angel funding and mentors them to grow into successful startups so obviously we didn't have an idea but the uh, nirma labs was open to us trying something out during our 6 month major project semester in nirma so we we came up with a couple of ideas which were already done right so a startup is something that there's something that's unique you your offering has to have value and it has to be unique we went with a lot of offerings that were of value we tried to we said we'll we'll make an amplifier that's better we'll make a home theater or a home automation system that's better than what's available today and all of the ideas were shot down by nirma labs mentors at that time mr tyagrajan was uh, our mentor at that time and he shot down all the ideas saying that you're only improving on something that's already done what we want is something that hasn't been done 
so far. That's how we came up with the idea of Chess Station Portable. Chess Station Portable was a touchscreen board game, right? So it's it's a flat, uh, large touchscreen on which you can play board games. And our as our proof of concept, we developed a chess application on that platform so that you could play chess on a touchscreen board. That was a big success. Everyone in Nirma loved it once it worked. There were a team of three people at that time, Siddharth, myself, and another friend of ours, Kushal Patel. We ended up building this. It worked really well. We got a lot of accolades for this project that uh, we also got interviewed by a couple of newspapers once this was developed. And about three months after that, the iPhone was launched. And all the board games that you wanted could be loaded on Apple through the App Store. So at that time, it seemed like when I applied at Apple, uh, they immediately offered me something within three hours of the interview because they realized that I had worked on hardware that was applicable to the iPhone's platform. They understood. And until that point, when Apple came out with the first iPhone, that was the first time that capacitive touchscreen or like the smooth touchscreens that we use uh, that have become ubiquitous in all our phones. Mm. They were the first ones to do that. And then you were literally working on that similar groundbreaking technology. I had already worked on that at the time of the interview. And I had a product on YouTube that did specifically what they wanted to do with games. Their eventual goal with the App Store was that we should have each and every, any game can be developed, uh, put on the App Store and people can play those games over the cloud or on the same phone for that matter. And that was a platform that we built. It was very simple, but obviously as a hardware engineer, the managers at Apple understood that I had experience with building a touchscreen based platform. So that's why I got an immediate offer from Apple. And uh, because I was, they asked me to come on full time, but because I was in my first semester at Carnegie Mellon and I still- Oh my God. So you hadn't even like finished the whole course yet, the two year master. No, I didn't. I had an offer at that point to, because I was obviously, uh, I had the option to finish my credits in two semesters instead of four. That was one th- the one way I could go and I could finish it in two semesters and then join Apple or I could do it in four semesters and then join Apple. They had given me the leeway to choose. I decided to do a co-op, which is basically a, a longer internship for six months and then go back to school for maybe a semester or two and then come back and join Apple. They were obviously not happy with that plan, but they were more than happy to offer me an internship for six months. That helps them understand whether I'm actually full of shit or whether I'm actually, (laughs) uh, or I've done what I said I've done, right? So they were more than happy to say, okay, you can't come on full time. You have to finish your credits. We understand join us for the internship program. I said, okay, great, I will do that. And uh, that's how I think at that time I was one of the first master students to get an internship or a job offer within maybe a month or two months of uh, joining uh, wow. Carnegie Mellon. And did you think about just dropping out of Carnegie Mellon to join Apple full-time? No, frankly, I did not. My A lot of my family and friends thought it would be better to convert my master's into a PhD. Um, Oh my God. So they were like, why don't you finish your master's credits and apply for a PhD? And you might uh, get, Carnegie Mellon offered PhD with scholarship. So you get, it's a completely paid 
PhD. Yeah. On top of that, you get a stipend for your uh, rent and your daily expenses. So it's a pretty good offer. So it was a tough thing to decide at that point. Getting a PhD from a prestigious university versus joining Apple full time was a difficult decision for me at that time. Today, it would have been an easy decision. Today, I would have just, uh, looking back at things, I would have just chosen Apple and uh, joined <laughs> Apple. But at that point, I thought that PhD, or obviously, I didn't have as much experience in the field. And I thought, okay, it makes sense to do a PhD if Carnegie Mellon is ready to offer it. Luckily, at the end of my two semesters at CMU. Basically here, you're you're making this tough decision where you're deciding between either joining Apple full-time and quitting Carnegie Mellon or right. finishing your master's and then joining Apple. And obviously in 2007, when the first iPhone came out, like they had a hit product in iPod, but again, Apple was nowhere as ubiquitous as it's now. So obviously right. that time there was a lot of uh, pressure on you. Right. So Apple actually gave me the option to finish my master's. They didn't want me to do a PhD, obviously, because their requirement was immediate. In fact, at the end of the internship, they were pretty clear that there was some hardware talent that I had in managing manufacturing, in managing the circuit design, hardware design, and dealing with the vendors of the chips and uh, components that go on the iPhone uh, circuit. So at that point, they did ask me to come on full time immediately. I couldn't because I hadn't finished all my credits. Uh, they, yeah. they asked me to finish them as soon as possible and join. And at that time, it was a difficult decision for me. I felt at that time that I did have a lot of hardware experience, but I didn't have a lot of firmware or software experience, which is also key to any product. Today, all products, IoT or otherwise, Hardware and firmware go hand in hand. Your hardware is, there is a limit to how much analog hardware can help. Eventually, you need some form of software that is written on microprocessors or microcontrollers if it's a small consumer product. Without understanding firmware or without understanding the need for, without understanding the needs of firmware, it's difficult to develop a product. I understood that at Apple because as much as we could uh, improve on the power supply, on the touchscreen, on the audio systems, which were all analog components, we couldn't solve or understand bugs in firmware. We could only help firmware with statistics on how their firmware was performing in terms of how much power the a particular application was using versus how much noise a particular application might be generating on the PCB board but we couldn't actually pinpoint flaws in the application. As a simple hardware engineer, that was a limitation that I realized I would have if I joined Apple at this point. So I took the hard decision and I said, I might want to do a couple of more semesters at Carnegie Mellon, get my degree, but get it properly with some computer science and computer engineering credits, or I might want to do a PhD. Obviously, Apple was not, my manager Apple wasn't happy with that decision. Nonetheless, he gave me a couple of months to decide. And when I went back to CMU with this decision in my mind, my professors offered me a, the PhD and they obviously pushed me into taking it. My family pushed me into accepting. My friends pushed me into accepting. I myself was confused and I accepted 
the PhD offer and informed my manager that I wouldn't be able to join Apple as wow. a, a full-time. But did you end up doing the PhD or did you end up then rethinking that and joining Apple? No, so I definitely accepted the PhD. I was in the program for about six months. I went to India for my cousin's wedding. I came back and sometime, some point within that semester, it kind of hit me that the PhD program was something that was good for certain people, but maybe I'm more inclined to hardware design and product development, not really a PhD where you deep dive into a simple fundamental problem and try to uh, solve that. Things. Yeah. So I understood that there was a lot of depth that was required in the PhD program, a lot of depth within a single topic that was required. That was something that didn't interest me as much at that time. And I didn't want to spend five or six years. I understood at that point that not only am I giving up good offers that are available in Silicon Valley, but I'm also giving up five or six years of my life. And at that point, I, after six months into the PhD program, I kind of had to take a decision that I would rather not continue a PhD. And instead, instead I should focus on research that leads to product rather than research that is merely improving or trying to understand a fundamental physical limitation. So I kind of dropped out from the PhD and I basically stopped my TA and RA duties and instead uh, only switched my professors, obviously, because to a professor that was more geared to research in product dev. And I worked with that professor for a year trying to develop uh, products that would eventually lead to startups, cutting edge product that requires the the kind of research that's done in universities and the kind of research facilities available in universities, but not necessarily something that is fundamentally groundbreaking. So I worked with two professors. They were, one was doing something in sports technologies and the other was building products in medical IoT. The medical IoT uh, professor got eventually applied for an SBIR. That's a grant from the government and he got funded for it. So he decided to start a company and he was ready to make me a co-founder of that company. So that was a good opportunity. At that time, we were funded. We had about a million dollars in free funding from the government. So it was a good opportunity. And I, at that point, I decided to completely jump out of the PhD program and co-found the company with him. This was and back probably in, upset your parents and everybody. There. Yeah, yeah. Everyone was very upset. Uh, <laughs> like, what is he doing? What's yeah. happened to him over there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So everyone was very upset. But a lot of people understood what I was doing. A lot of people felt that I've wasted all the money that I've invested in education in the US. Uh, so there was a lot of drama at that time. But something in my mind said that it was a good decision at that time. I joined uh, that professor with his SBIR funding. We co-founded a company. I did a lot of, I ended up managing the electronics manufacturing and prototyping for the company. I ended up managing accounting because we had to submit reports to the government on what we were spending towards the research in this medical IoT product. 
So I got into a lot of accounting, a lot of legal, a lot of compliance that was required to actually run a company. And we ran that for three years. We did build a product that worked. We realized that Mm -hmm. at some point we realized that building a medical product in the US with the regulations and with the kind of testing that had to be done, the kind of clinical trials that had to be done, it was going to be an expensive process. We all had to be certified to actually perform clinical trials on patients, even though the product was non-invasive. Non-invasive meaning it's outside layman term is that it's not, you're not cutting into into someone's body for per se. You're just, it's a device that measures something from the surface. So that's what our product did. And uh, it was non-invasive, but still the costs were too high. The grants that we would have to offer and get were either too long, too difficult or too expensive to apply for. So after about three years, I realized that this would be something very difficult to achieve in the US with the limited funding and resources we had. Yeah. At the same time, I also got an opportunity to be the first engineer on a robotics company. Robotics, which was always my something that skill that I have and a passion that I had. I also got an opportunity to be the first engineer for Bossa Nova Robotics that was building IoT robotic toys. So it included fun because it was toy eventually. It was going to go on Walmart shelves and Radio Shack and Toys R Us. So it was a toy eventually. We were building something for fun, but it also had the robotics element. It also had IoT. And yeah. uh, I thought it was a good opportunity to be a first engineer on that in that company. Again, Bossa Nova was a startup. They didn't have much funding. A lot of effort was put into building a POC. I built a POC for them. The in proof my of free, concept, yeah. A proof of concept in my free time. They liked it. We actually got, Bossa Nova got funding about, of about $20 million based on that a proof of concept. And, uh, and who were the investors? There was a group called Invis in New York that invested I see. Uh, at that time. We ended up uh, building this robotics toy that connected to the cloud that all the toys were connected to each other. All the users could log into their app or to their browser and check the points and the scores and the friends that they had in the cloud based on the toys that they were playing with in reality. So it was kind of an online, offline kind of product that Bossa Nova had envisioned and we had envisioned. Uh, and what year was this again? This was back in 2011, 2012. Wow, sorry, so quite ahead of its time. Sorry, two, not even 2000. It was 2010. Sorry. Not wow, even, that is quite ahead of its time. Yeah. <laughs> so they were the first. People didn't get it, frankly. We, we built the product. We spent a lot of money. We set up manufacturing contracts in China. Bossa Nova founders at that time realized that I had management skills to manage production in China. They sent me there for about three to four months in the year to help find, uh, finish the end product in China and then to ramp up manufacturing. So I did that in uh, the mid and end of 2010. We shipped about 200,000 units to Walmart and Radio wow. Shack and Toys R Us. It was a good product. It was well-priced. We spent a lot of time building, bringing the price to a point where it could actually be a 
Christmas gift for a lot of kids in the US in 2010. Unfortunately, we didn't sell as much as we thought we would. We didn't live up to the profits that we uh, that the investors were hoping for. Yeah. So at that time, in early 2011, when I had understood that the medical company was maybe not going to go further than research, and I realized, and at that time we got the news that the product in Boston Nova Robotics hadn't performed up to expectations, and the investors were worried. So, so you were that, doing both at the same time, or yeah, like, I was uh, yeah, I was doing both at the same time for about a year. So uh, you were a co-founder at uh, the medical mm, IoT device company, and right. you were also the first engineer at Boston Nova Robotics, right. and but you dropped out completely out of the the PhD program yes. at that time. I dropped out of the PhD wow. uh, mid-2009, and yeah. uh, in 2010, I was fully working on the medical IoT product as well as yeah. this. So uh, both of these yeah. were seeming that, you know, they may not have mm -hmm. a favorable outcome that you had imagined when you started right, out. Right, right. By this point, even the recession in the U.S., uh, there was a recession in the U.S. 2009, yeah. everyone knows about it. So in 2010, end of 2010, early 2011, there was an opportunity to obviously to go back to Apple. I had a lot of friends back in Apple from Carnegie Mellon. They were they were ready to help me get back in Apple. There were a couple of friends in Google at that time. They were also ready to help me get a position in Google. But I mm -hmm. thought after being involved with startups, I felt like that would be maybe mundane or the growth, the, yeah. the rate of growth would not be similar. And that was... End of 2010 was also when I got married. So I thought that whatever decision I should take should now be long-term and should not be something yeah. that something short-term. And then your wife that you're married to now and have uh, your mm. two kids, with, that's the one you got married to. Right. The same girl. And uh, she at that point was based in the US or India? No, she was based in India, but she had a visa. So there was no issue as such. Should you decide to stay here? I see. Should we decide? So I had to decide... We talked amongst each other and we had to decide whether we actually wanted to uh, live in the U.S. versus living in versus moving back to India. Yeah. At that time, I was pretty sure at that time, obviously, I was in touch with a lot of my friends back in India that included Siddharth. Who, yeah. So that's how Siddharth comes back. So we I had an inkling that he's going to come back in the story. <laughs> yeah. So, <pretty> soon. <laughs> so Siddharth uh, told me that. Uh, he and his brother Sandeep had eventually tried out this online store and they had a first mover advantage and uh, they saw a lot of traction because there were so many young engineers and that needed these robotic parts and they didn't know how to get it. And it was uh, because Siddharth and Sandeep who had started uh, RoboKits back in 2007 and it actually picked up in 2009. At that time, they felt that this is only the sales and the growth is only going up. Yeah. Uh, every year they saw exponential increase in sales and in customer interest. So they were very excited to have someone help them grow something which they had already built. So back in early 2011 was when I had to take a decision and I decided, okay, there's, I'm not going to continue with the current startups that I'm with because it's they're not really going in a direction yeah. that would be favorable. Again, I didn't want to move to California or Silicon Valley uh, if that was not something that was my plan for the next 
five to ten years. So I took a hard decision at that time, and I decided I'll move back to India. I'll try something. I'll definitely join Robokits with Siddharth and Sandeep, and yeah. we'll make it work. At that point, I was pretty ambitious and optimistic. I felt that I'd already achieved a lot in the U.S. I'd got a lot of experience and discipline that uh, was required to build something and do something entrepreneurial in India. So I felt that some way or the other, I'll make it work. You'll um, make it work by hook or crook. Yeah, and Siddharth and Sandeep are great people. They are ethical and they come from a very simple, humble, but a very intelligent and knowledgeable background. They understand technology. They understand product. They understand value. At the same time, they understand how to spend money, where to invest in, and where not to invest. So, in. quick that, uh, yeah. fun fact for you here is that because the right at the time, the 2011, when you know you are almost now going back to India to join RoboKids, hmm. I was in Nirma from 2008 to 2012. Right, and uh, you could almost say that you were uh, you were an inspiration to me, and I was just following your footsteps. I right. ended up joining Robocon, right, and uh, we we unfortunately did not <laughs> win like you, and okay. <laughs> we we were knocked out of the quarterfinals. But um, I think one of the things that uh, you know, ro- like just joining that uh, competition for mm-hmm. uh, robotics, Robocon taught me was persistence. Right, uh, one incident that comes to mind was. I was kicked out of a lot of the teams. So unlike mm. you, I in my whole life I've had to uh, mm. rely on my networking skills more than my talent at times. So um, me and this person who shall <laughs> remain unnamed, uh, we did not get along uh, in the interview. So he said that as long as I'm here as the head of this team, you will not come into Robocon. Right. So I went to the talent scout that you mentioned, uh, Katie, sir. Uh, Professor right. Katie, sir, that I also ran into uh, at a wedding when I was in India recently. Right. So I kind of like made my case to him, and uh, he said, "You know, I'll talk to the team lead and kind of put you in." So it kind of like went back and forth, uh, and then I think at one point I was kicked out of the team like ten times, and then every time I would go to Professor Katie, sir, and then come back in. And uh, at one point, the the team lead got so pissed off at me, and then he was a uh, the electrical engineer so he was like you know head of electronics there for the robotics side of things and one time he got so mad that he took a screwdriver and then he was trying to throw it next to me and uh, the screwdriver actually hit me and i think i have a mark somewhere on my shoulder it just like stuck <laughs> there and this guy's like half in size to me like height wise yeah. so yeah. i was watching a lot of bollywood movies and i'm like i want to like give him a piece of my mind but i couldn't say anything cuz then i would be uh-huh. kicked off and we were about to like right. go to the to the main competition so It definitely uh, taught me a lot about patience, if nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> so at this point, you move back to India with yeah. uh, your wife's already there, right? And and you're joining robotics. And in 2011, I remember that when we were going to IITs for the technical festivals and competitions, there were other upstarts coming in, but Robokids definitely had the first mover advantage because everywhere we will see, we I went to Mumbai, and there people from Delhi, everybody was like buying. the hobbyist parts from robokits like motors right. and servers development kits um electronic right. components like leds it was kind of like what would they call it the uh, the do it yourself diy uh, leader in india and it was just like homegrown so you joined them at that point in 2011 right right so in 2011 i joined them we w- we decided that we would grow robokits the online store but we would also try to siddharth and i always had a passion of 
building our own products, like building stuff in India and actually selling it to businesses or to consumers. So we had ideas of building medical IoT products. We had ideas of building high-end servo systems or motor drives that were not available in India at that time. Even a lot of professional photography equipment was only manufactured in the US at that time. And I thought that it would be a good idea to build these kind of niche products in India so that companies in India could buy it at a lower price. And that would give them an advantage because obviously they don't have the funds, but they have the talent. So it would give them an advantage to actually compete in the international market. So we had all these ideas. We started in 2011 with a couple. In 2011, we started, we obviously decided to grow RoboKits. We put in some more money. We bought some more stock. We made relations with more vendors. We hired a lot more engineers and employees to, in some cases, to manufacture or to assemble some of the boards that were designed by us. In some cases, to manage, manage inventory, manage customers, and to manage our purchase. And so what that, did you mean by when you said that we put in more money and buy more stock? So the advantage of RoboKits or the advantage of any company that is in the online uh, sale is that you have the product in stock. A lot of companies in electronics do not stock components or even today do not stock components or parts in India. They usually stock in Singapore, China, Malaysia, Thailand, because once you bring it in India, you pay custom duty. And uh, yes. once you pay custom duty, it's too expensive to send it back out. So you only import when you know you're going to sell it. That's a big barrier to entry. You have to understand the market. You have to know what the needs are so that you can stock something that you know you will sell. So the idea was to stock product that would eventually be, which would definitely be sold in India. And to be able to take that risk because we understood the online market and we understood the needs of roboticists in India. So we definitely started a lot of uh, lines, a lot of more motor products, a lot of more motor drives, motor solutions, actuator solutions in 2011 and 12. That was the time we started our brand of motion solutions or motor solutions that we named Rhino. So Rhino Motion Controls is a segment of RoboKits that focuses on motors and motor-based actuations. So for all those listeners who are, you're kind of like, oh, this is too much like geeky talk about robotics. Mm -hmm. So essentially what he is saying that they were the one of the leading India's hobby stores for robotic parts, but eventually they just kind of like started these small spin-offs where they were making those parts themselves, specific niche parts. And uh, here, one of the things I do remember when you guys were doing the Rhino right. boards and platform, I was actually an intern there right? and uh, in, in 2012. And one of the things that fascinated me, and this is, I would say that if they're doing like business case studies in terms of uh, intellectual property and how to maintain that, this should be like definitely there. One thing I noticed that in India, you know, people employ uh, maids to like clean the factories or clean the, you know, offices. And what I noticed is that you guys train these maids to actually do soldering work on the the hardware boards and the, the PCBs, the printed circuit boards. 
Right. So what led to that kind of decision? Because this is genius, right? It's not actually genius because this is something that China does very well. I was in China for six months in the year for in 2009 and 2010. And I kind of understood how they manufactured. And that was why I tried to bring those manufacturing processes to India. In China, what they understood that any kind of integrate soldering is like sewing, right? Like a sweater. So you need to be patient. You need to be yeah. precise. And that kind of mentality is found in women more than in men, at least in China. So when I was in one of the factories and they had a specific room where only 10, they had a huge floor with hundreds of male laborers building machining screws, uh, bolting things down, fitting the plastic parts together. Assembling the things, yeah. And uh, assembling, yes. But they had a room with 10 women who were only building prototypes. And the wow. reason for that is that they were doing each and every prototype by hand. It was not being done on machines. It was being done by manually. Wow. If you Anywhere in the US, if you had to build a proto, you would normally give it to one of these online companies with you'd upload your bomb, you'd upload your PCB Gerber files, and a company would send that data to either India or China, and that would either a machine or a human would solder them for you and uh, ship it via FedEx or DHL back to the US. So you didn't normally do the soldering yourself in the US, you always got it outsourced. Done by a human. Right. Right. And so, then the, the the PCB design, the Gerber files are basically just a design layout of how right. the, the board should look like. Right. So a lot of these prototypes were being done in China or in India, either manually or on machines. But if you needed something quick, if you needed a small change to a prototype, you had to swap out an IC. You couldn't do that on a machine. You had to have these maids who were able to do it without damaging the PCB board or without damaging the surrounding oh. components. So if so, you had to change a chip on the board, you would have one of those mates just, right. you know, very delicately, you know, like precision, you right. do that. Right. I kind of thought you guys did that because you guys, from a business perspective, makes sense that so nobody can steal your IP because because I was like, why not just hire electrical engineers? But then they would understand the board, the you know, the layout and just copy and clone it. But the maids, because they didn't have the... I guess the electrical knowledge or the engineering knowledge, they, I guess, couldn't do much about it. So you, you frankly, that could have been 10 or 20% of the reason, but that's not the only reason why you had so many reasons to have maids. One is because they're able to sit in one place and work for eight hours without any patiently. You don't see that with a lot of male labor. Number yeah. two, a lot of engineers in India think they are above manual work, right? Soldering ah, is manual work. This is too work. menial for them, yeah. Yeah, so if they've designed the board and you ask them to solder it themselves, they kind of, they don't like it. They don't, they think it's below them or beneath yeah. them to do it. It's like, how dare you give me this like low level job? Right. So that was another reason why we had to give it to them. Definitely the third reason was you wanted to separate the design work and the manufacturing work so that each person didn't understand the full set yeah. of uh, the full set of requirements to a perspective that they could just leave the company and duplicate start their own. Right. 
So how on earth did you even convince all these mates that are coming there to just clean your office that, hey, you know, I'm going to teach you how to solder a circuit board uh, and all these like, 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 you know, like detailed electronic stuff? Like, because they'll be like, uh, sir, we, you know, like we don't know how to do this. Uh, well, it's all about uh, money at the end. Money and convenience, right? So we explain to them that, okay, you make X amount working. You work at eight different places of eight different offices cleaning the cleaning uh, cleaning things and you you spend 15 minutes to get from one place to the other yeah you're tired at the end you can't work eight hours you work six hours a day and you still only make x amount but if we give you if we teach you a skill and we'll guarantee that you you have a job here for the next five years and you only need to work eight hours a day sitting in one place and doing the same thing and you will earn more than that X amount. And it's less taxing on your body too. Right, right. So they actually thought that if it's less taxing, I could work eight hours over here and I could actually work four hours early in the morning or late in the evening somewhere else. So not only am I making X, I'm making X plus X, right? Yeah. So to them, this was like a golden opportunity. Yeah. And uh, we actually have at least 15 employees today that have been working with us for the last five to seven years now uh, wow. where they they didn't know anything they didn't have any skill they didn't go to an iti they didn't have any trained skill except that they knew to they knew had they had hands feet and eyes and we taught them how they should actually build circuit boards that would uh, work that is amazing man and so now you've got the RoboKids business that's selling all these hobbies, robotic parts to all the students, engineers around India. Right. And then at some point you guys decide that, okay, we need to pivot from this consumer model where we're just selling all these parts, electronic parts, but we need to now have our own line of products. You know, maybe we need to just go from consumer side to business to business, but instead, you know, like sell to big businesses, maybe do manufacturing for them. Hmm. At what point did you guys think about making this pivot or what led to that pivot? Uh, so a couple of things. We always, number one, we obviously tried with building our own brands and our own products and selling them online. Uh, there's a limit to how much you can sell online because a lot of, not a lot of customers are online. You can't generate offline distribution and stores without a huge uh, markup in price. If you expect someone to open a store and sell your product, they're looking for about 30 to 40 percent uh, margin on the uh, maximum retail price. So we didn't we didn't plan our products to be that expensive. We planned our products to be inexpensive enough that people could use it, and uh, it could be a use and throw kind of product. Yeah. You want you had a project where you had to build the proof of concept. You should be able to do that in a reasonable price without breaking your wallet. Yes. But at the same time, proving that something can be done. So it was important to maintain the price. And for that reason, it was important not to go with the distribution channel and to kind of sell it online in a way where obviously we're making profit for the designs and the manufacturing that we're doing. But at the same time, we're not pricing it at a point where it's impossible for them to, to buy these kind of products. We realized though that selling these products online, the market is pretty limited. There are very few people who would understand 
the documentation online who had the yeah. uh, patience to understand documentation online or the knowledge to understand the documentation online and actually build things with our products a lot of people wanted that was the time of uh, when arduino was launched and people then wanted everything open source ready and ready to use and you just give me a sample code i'll load it on uh, an arduino board or a raspberry pi uh, development board and i'll be good to go people didn't want to make the effort to actually write any drivers or any low From level scratch code. and everything yeah. so and for those people arduino and raspberry pi are just right. like you know do it yourself fully end to end platforms right. right open source where you can just build and tinker with your own hardware ideas right. yeah building uh, robotic parts ourselves that didn't integrate with arduino or that didn't integrate with raspberry pi and not having the sample code and the online support meant that the product wouldn't sell in huge quantities so we realized that if we wanted to grow we needed someone who was able to manage and again we were we were not so good with offline sales we're not so good with setting up distribution channels and uh, making sure that everyone in the channel is happy so we realized that there are some people who have product ideas and people who have distribution channels already set up for medical devices for iot devices the only problem is that they are buying their product from china or they are buying that product at a price that's unacceptable to their business for example we met with equilibrium energy back in 2012 just a year as well as with okter okter is a home automation company in uh, noida we met with these guys and they said we're building home automation or industrial automation products the cost of our device is say x or 2 like 100 dollars yeah 100 dollars and i yeah. and i look at it i we siddharth and sandeep and i look at these products and we understand that there is a huge scope to not manufacture these products in the us or in china and actually manufacture them in uh, india and we could actually bring that 100 dollars to 50 dollars Why is that? So what's right. what's so expensive about China? Like I mean, I I really don't know much about the manufacturing in China. So let's say that I want to just uh, develop a product, a simple camera module, right? Just that, basically, right. you know, like for security purposes at home. Hmm. Why would that be so expensive in China? What are the costs uh, that that's driving that up? The number one problem with China is the fact that assembled electronic board shipped from China or anywhere in the world attracts a duty. that duty and shipping cost once you do the math ends up being assuming you don't smuggle it into the country yeah. ends up being uh, somewhere around 10 to 12% on the base value so there's already a 12% margin that you can Whoa. make if you manufacture in india so 12% is number one number two new companies and startups don't really have the kind of quantities that can yeah. uh, justify the fixed costs that a factory in china would need to bear to set up manufacturing in china for them like a custom yeah. one for them i see right so usually the cost in manufacturing is not there is a fixed cost and a variable cost the fixed yeah. cost is basically training engineers to understand your product building yeah. test code test processes test jigs that will be able to validate each and every feature of the product quality and, control yeah and then do repeat that process enough number of times in the test 
set up to validate that the product's quality is up to the repeatability and quality is up to the mark. So setting up those, those test jigs, having engineers who understand that test process, and then someone at a managerial level who can make sure that all of these parts in quality and testing work seamlessly, that fixed cost is expensive. And that fixed cost is something which uh, inhibits startups that only have maybe businesses less than maybe 50,000 US dollars a year. That would inhibit Chinese man, uh, big Chinese factories from actually taking on those kind of roads. So what you're telling me is that if I want to manufacture this camera module we talked about, right. there's like the first component is, you know, the import duty I got to pay to get it right. from China to India in right. this case or US for that matter. Right. The second cost is because I'm a startup, I'm just you know creating the design of the product. They're gonna not only charge me for manufacturing that, mm -hmm. but on top of that, another fee, mm -hmm. which is just to oversee the whole process. Yeah, they usually charge somewhere between around 10% of the product to oversee everything and to take responsibility in case something oh my God. doesn't work out. And that's standard anywhere in, China. So that's already 20% 20, 20 markup that I already yeah. can see there. 10% right. of that duty and then there's another 10% that, you know, approximately we talked about just to oversee right. the process. Right. Ah, I see. The other problem is that the other advantage that we provide over some uh, getting it manufactured in China is when you're getting it manufactured in China, you are providing them a design. The design that someone in India has developed is usually done through consultants. Uh, yeah. Consultants in India are not, their business is only understanding what you need, building something yeah. that delivers what you need. They are not responsible for the cost to manufacture it. Oh, I see. So, so they are more like, we just want to, like they want a camera module, we'll take mm -hmm. whatever off the shelf hardware that comes there, regardless of how expensive it is, and we're just going to give it to the client. Right. So the client obviously is happy at the end. The, uh, a client comes in and says, I want a photograph of someone's eyeball or someone's retina, right? Yeah. So build the camera module with tracking, a specific yeah. lens. So people would use a Raspberry Pi camera, yeah. ready-made camera module and a Raspberry Pi, and they would take and they would capture that image, put it on a server or put it on a USB drive. And the customer would be happy, right? Like, wow, I've, yeah, I've been able to. That's what I would do. I would use off-the-shelf right. stuff, existing right. code, not right. try to reinvent the wheel and just give you that basic something that works. But now when you want to compete in the market and you want to actually build, say, 10,000 of these, unless and until it's an untapped market or unless and until oh, you are yeah. exporting it, you need to reduce cost. You don't need yeah. something as expensive or as bulky as a Raspberry Pi to just capture a single image. Maybe for a video, yes, but for image, you don't. A simple 32-bit Cortex-M0 should be fast enough and powerful enough to capture an image from CMOS sensor. So that's where the advantage is, right? If someone can design your product for you that's cost-effective enough in manufacturing, that eventually helps you make more money or reduce your end price to the customer so that more customers are attracted to your product, there's a huge advantage in that. 
So now, uh, just to clarify, so RoboKits was the business that was selling all these parts online. Mm-hmm. And now you guys start up the start of this new venture, which is just dealing with directly business to business client, which you guys are calling Dazzle Robotics, correct? Right. So we started the private limited company, Dazzle Robotics Private Limited, which basically bought over the RoboKits online business. And also, mm-hmm. and under the same roof, we're doing the Rhino brand of uh, product which we are manufacturing, which is also sold on RoboKits, the RoboKits online platform. And we're also supporting these B2B clients with uh, as OEMs for them. So they come to us with, so maybe I can go over uh, the process with the clients we have right now and with new clients that we onboard. Oh yeah. So like, yeah. so basically, so Dazzle Robotics is the parent company and all these right. are the sub ones. So just to like read through the previous part, the benefit of somebody hmm. coming to you to manufacture a custom hardware solution if they want to make a hardware product. Right. And when I say hardware product, it could be anything from your nest at home to anything they have just an idea. Right. They want to come to you if they're based in India because A, you guys have factories in, in India, so you're local, you don't have to smuggle anything in, in, in India or pay import right. duties. You guys are not going to charge the crazy amount of margin that's there in China just to oversee the whole manufacturing and stuff. Right. So it's going to basically, and then you guys also will build something from from scratch. So this way, there's not that additional off-the-shelf associated cost. Overall, right. your client's product is going to be very, very extremely competitive in the market right. in terms of cost. On average, we're able to bring most of the products at 50% of the price than what it was before the customer came to us. So if I come to you right now, let's say with a, a product idea, what does that onboarding process look like all the way from onboarding me to mm-hmm. let's say the the finished pro- process what would like at high level the different steps involved and and how do you guys interact with the clients so when we onboard new client the first and foremost thing that we look for is what is the product that they are trying to build are they building a product that is only going to be valid for the next one or two years or are they going to build a product and are they going to eventually set up a business that will, for the next 10 or 15 years, will have some regular business or will grow uh, for the next 10 years? The idea being that whatever we do right now, whatever development we do for them right now, whatever efforts we make for them right now, should not be limited to one or two years in the future, but it should help them and help us grow for the next 10 years. So understanding their business model, understanding their product, understanding that there is a possibility to reduce the cost or improve the efficiency with which by working with us, improving the cost or the efficiency at which they can do that business and whether that business will be a valid business for the next 10 years. These are the first and foremost things that we understand with the customer. I can give you an example of that. Recently, in the last three or four years, there is a move towards street lights being LED-based rather than incandescent bulb-based. Yes. So there are a lot of companies that were wanted to redesign LED-based street lights with all these features, and uh, they wanted to apply for government tenders or smart city tenders and install new street lights in those projects. The reason we don't 
would not want to or would not take that kind of a project is because we know that whatever we design, number one, is going to be subject to competition from a whole lot of foreign companies outside India that would eventually yes. import their product. And also, yeah. it's only a couple of years once all the streetlights are replaced, the requirement is not going to come up again. This it's not means, a recurring business. It's yes. not a recurring business. You're just manufacturing something that's already designed efficiently. You're just helping the person manufacturing it at maybe 12 or 15% lower cost than what it would cost them to import something that's already available in China or in Japan or Germany or the US. So that's a business we would not get into. On the other hand, businesses that we would get into are physiotherapy devices. A lot of physiotherapy or uh, consumer physiotherapy products, which are, you can talk about muscle stimulators or nerve stimulators that help uh, reduce pain or help increase blood circulation. These kind of products are normally imported from Germany or China or the US. Number one, they're not cost effective. They're not built Very for expensive. the they're not for the uh, Indian client because each region or each country, the uh, because of the DNA or the genetics of people, everyone has different kind of medical problems. A lot of people in India have arthritis or have diabetes compared to the rest of the world. So if you're building a physiotherapy device, you want to build that device, which is specifically targeting the ailments of the group of customers that we're target, that we're yeah. selling it to. So if arthritis is uh, the main issue and we want to improve the lifestyle of people with arthritis, uh, you want to develop a physiotherapy device or a nerve stimulator that helps people with arthritis specifically. So uh, rather than buying an expensive uh, physiotherapy device or hiring a technician to come home with an expensive physiotherapy device to give you therapy for an a half hour or a day, we decided to partner with a company that wanted to develop a physiotherapy product that specifically targets diabetes or blood circulation issues or arthritis issues and giving a specific product that only targets that ailment. Yeah. So there's no requirement for a technician to specifically go. The user can learn how to use the product from the manual or from videos oh, and self-serve them. self themselves. So those are the kind of business models when we see those kind of business models where uh, we're not just building something for a percentage price that's cheaper than other products, but also changing the dynamics of the business, which can eventually make that business grow exponentially. That's where we prefer to get involved with. So my uncle actually has both of those conditions and right. before leaving India to come back to the States, <laughs> I actually signed him up with a technician to kind of right. like come and right. provide him that. So I definitely will, uh, you know, like buy one of your products and give it to him to see if, if he's, uh, you know, kind of like how he thinks about that idea. You guys are almost operating like in a way a typical investment firm or a venture capital firm will look at deals. You guys are looking at the future potential of the product, you guys own recurring business. So hmm. one thing I'm curious about is now when you're dealing with these companies, one way of payment might be an all cash deal where they just pay you the entire right. thing in just money. Right. But maybe if it's a startup, they might just be like, hey, we'll give you equity. So when do you guys decide that, okay, you know, we want to do a cash deal versus a cash plus equity or or something like that, like a like a hybrid deal? 
it depends first of all on who the promoter is a lot of promoters who are cash heavy who have the money to spend would would rather not give up equity because they would rather have full control on the product in the future so yeah. they would prefer an all cash deal and we understand the customer there is value in his business if we understand there is value in his business and we understand that there is going to be continuous business for the next 10 years with this customers we would accept an all cash deal again an all cash deal doesn't mean that we charge for design we never charge for design we never charge for prototyping we only charge for manufacturing all that we ask is that once your prototype works and once your yeah. product is at a price point where uh, once we've designed it to be at a price point where your business will be successful that you give us the contract for manufacturing that's all we ask for but so, what if it takes like 50 iterations to build that prototype isn't that expensive for you guys i mean isn't uh, there like is, a cap like it it is expensive but that's a cost that we uh, readily oh, accept oh so you guys are designing a a delightful experience like hey nobody's going to go through yeah. uh, such amount of pains to do that and when somebody does mm. this much for free you're like you know what i want to go with dazzle robotics because right. they are going above and beyond to help me i right. see right so there are a lot of products that take maybe a year or a year and a half to get right a lot of products where you start off with a prototype and you realize once you have the prototype that that's not exactly what you wanted i'm pretty sure any product developer would understand that you came yeah. up with a vision of a product and you made one judgment call which actually was wrong at the time you developed you designed the product and because of that judgment call uh, which ends up being a, no, a stop a no go for the product you have to completely redesign product it happens a lot that after 3 yeah. or 6 months of the product it has to be completely redesigned we understand that and we take that upon ourselves to redesign something and we keep working on the product until it's at a point where it can go into volume manufacturing but what if it that period takes 6 months here are you guys not worried about the fact that what if the the startup cannot pay then that 6 months or 7 months or how long the duration went uh, it is not uh, resourceful for you guys in terms of money yeah so again that's the risk right that's the risk a vc has that's the risk we have oh we, i see so there are many times where we've developed something for a customer and it hasn't gone anywhere maybe the customer we've delivered a small batch of products and after that the customer hasn't been able to grow his business or he's changed his ideas or something else has come in the market that makes his or we made a judgment call on the product or something else has come up in the market and he doesn't think that it makes any sense to move ahead with with that product which we worked on for a year it's happened multiple times but that's part and part of past and parcel of business you have to, there are going to be some bad decisions yeah. there are going to be some things that are out of your hand and uh, you have to take that in your stride So I'm going to ask you for like a horror story right now. Hmm. Um and you don't have to name the client, you can keep it anonymous, but what I'm I'm curious hmm. to know is was there any like horror story or I mean not say horror but like uh, a bad decision from your part in dealing with a client um hmm. that just didn't go well but that failure later set you guys up for success? Uh, is there like any story that comes to mind? So anything that doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Any yeah. product that you work on any new technology that you work on is going to build experience for for yourself and the team right from everyone in the company when we have a new product they learn something new 
If you're working today on optics, everyone will understand some basics about optics. If you're working on a motor, everyone will understand some basics about the motor if they manufacture even one prototype. So there is no value that you can put on knowledge. There is no value yeah. that you can put in experience. And that is why any horror story will eventually end up being a success if you have the patience to live uh, to wait it out. One of those experiences is in 2012, there was a huge push in India for a smart metering and automatic meter reading. The idea was mm -hmm. that these uh, meter maids for all the power companies, all the power supply companies in India, they had to go door to door. They had to access the location where the electric meters were installed and they would have to read out manually or through a device, they would have to read out the reading, the, the units that were used. And accordingly, they would have to bill the customer for those units. These right. guys would come to your house and see how much electricity you've consumed in that meter outside your house. Right. And then report that to the electricity company. Right. And then the electricity company would send you a bill based on that. Yeah, that's how it's done I everywhere, see. right? You Anywhere in India, that's how you're built. Someone specifically yeah. comes, checks the reading of the meter, and you're built according to that reading. Now, yeah. there was a huge push from a lot of the power in the power sector to reduce the effort that was made to take those readings and to be able to disconnect meters from the power if in case some customer wasn't ready to pay his bill or if in case they figured out that someone was tampering with the meters and bypassing the meters in that case you would want to somehow remotely turn off the meter or you would want to yeah. turn off power to the customer's site but without access to the meter, without access to the, the circuit breakers, you would not be able to do that. So there was a huge push. All meter manufacturers and all power supply units wanted to build wireless communication into the meters. And they wanted to build gateways or wireless readers that could, if placed within a certain range of the meters, it could communicate with the meter and it could read out the meter, the readings or the units from the meter. And it could also command the meter to maybe turn itself off or to turn itself back on based on any default, any customer that doesn't want to pay his utility bill. So there were a lot of tenders that were being floated. There were a lot of companies from outside India as well as companies within India that wanted to get their hands on technology that could serve that purpose or that solve that problem for these power companies. So at that time, we developed a solution in collaboration with a couple of big semiconductor companies. They, they realized that we had some understanding of wireless systems and uh, designing RF communication circuit boards. So we had a joint venture with one of these big semiconductor companies and we actually built a module that was sub uh, three US dollars that could be installed in the meter wow. and also installed in the remote system or in the gateway and uh, retrieve data from uh, the meters. We spent a lot of money. Uh, we spent about two years of our time, a lot of money. And we realized at the end that the specifications that each meter manufacturer needed were different. Yeah. Everyone and the specifications and the needs kept changing every few months. And uh, 
it seemed like there was a lot of politics and a lot of other drama happening which limited even a working solution to actually yeah. uh, go into the final tendering process so it turned out that we spent a lot of money or two years in development uh, to build a product that worked eventually we realized that someone had taken our solution to china and duplicated it uh, oh as well so that was a horror story for us where we spent two years of our r&d efforts a lot of money and realized at the end that it was not going anywhere no and no somebody stole your research as well and, on top of and that and someone might have duplicated our research maybe not got there 100% but at least good enough to actually make that effort so we decided to eventually pivot to uh, using that that technology for home automation instead of a meter reading wireless home automation in a sense where you have all of your electronic devices in your home or all of your switch gear in your home connect using our wireless technology or backbone you can control all of your switch gear from a single location or at least understand the data coming from your switch gear so we worked with octor at that time in 2012 we were in initial talks with them but eventually in 2015 octor was able to build a successful home automation uh, product and put it out in the market and they got a great response because our product was able to give a good indoor wireless range that usually is not available in wifi or bluetooth systems so they uh, octor eventually sold uh, at least 200 to 300000 units uh, wow. of our product in the last 4 years uh, so that definitely counts as a horror story gone right because eventually it's been maybe 7 years since we started that product but the horror which we which seemed to have happened in 2013 14 eventually yeah. ended up being uh, something that we could a consider huge, a success. success yeah that is phenomenal so literally this horror story that happened but the knowledge from that mm. was useful for you guys down the road right definitely this has happened multiple times and we've always grown uh, at the end of the day we realized that it's better to work for products that create value it's better to work for products that have something innovative because the knowledge and the experience from them is more valuable than the any kind of money that or a remuneration that can be paid for the services that you offer so here what advice do you have for budding hardware designers that want to enter the job market so whether they want to work in silicon valley companies at apple google or whether they want to go out on their own what words of wisdom do you have for them uh if you are a hardware engineer i would advise you to be patient with whatever you're working on try to understand the underlying physics or the limitations of the conditions that are preventing you from achieving what you're trying to achieve and i would also advise that hacking a hardware or hacking software can only get you so far but if you can change the fundamentals of your product or if you can understand the fundamental of your product you can build something that's revolutionary that is deep wow i need to write that one for my own book so i really really want to appreciate man for just coming on the show being so patient with me and sharing with me all your wisdom i hope that what we've discussed can inspire people to take tough decisions and hope for the best and eventually work hard to 
understand value versus profit when it comes to engineering absolutely you can find show notes for this episode and all the others at designmba.show if you find this episode valuable share it on social media and please leave a review thank you so much for listening till next time